There is no secret formula for better customer service. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot, bringing service and support together in one powerful platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up a rep's time with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can easily support and grow your customer base. Secrets out, everybody. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. When I think of ski resort consolidation, folk music isn't usually the second thing that comes to mind. But last year, there was enough controversy on the slopes that the world's biggest ski resort operator, Vale, got a special call out from Noah Khan. In his song, Paul Revere, he sings, This place had a heartbeat in its day. Vale bought the mountains and nothing was the same. Vale's been going around buying up smaller resorts left and right. Because although the season's getting shorter and snow is getting harder and harder to come by, the ski resort business is anything but chill. I'm Catherine Laidlaw. And I'm Mark Dent. You're listening to The Hustle Daily Show, the weekend version. Today, we're going to talk about how ski resorts still manage to be wildly profitable despite rising costs, shrinking development potential, and shrinking snowfall. Yeah, Catherine, when you think back to just like a little bit over a month ago around the new year, which is like the peak of the peak season for ski resorts, in Colorado, there was basically no snow, not around Vail Mountain or really around any of the big resorts. And yet at Vail, what you saw was that a single day lift ticket cost $299, which was the highest amount ever that had been charged at the resort and about $100 more than it was just a few years ago and $200 more than it was like 10, 15 years ago. So there's like these extraordinary kind of price increases, not a lot of snow, and yet so many more people skiing. This is by far the most popular that skiing has ever been. So wait a second. There's less snow than ever before. Tickets are higher than ever before. And still skiers are coming out in record high numbers. How does that make sense? You have to go back pretty far, I think, to understand. It has a lot to do with Vail Resorts. And the way that the ski industry grew in general, there's this really kind of odd history in the ski industry where the National Forest Service actually started everything. And then like, you know, 100 plus years ago, they started putting up rope toes and maybe like small chairlifts on some of their forest lands so people could go skiing. But it starts to get bigger. And there's an author named Michael Childers, who's also a professor at Colorado State University, who wrote a book called Colorado Powder Keg. And he explained to me kind of what happened where the industry developed from these very small origins into something that got dominated by Vail. And the Forest Service realizes that it can't manage these skiers on its own. It needs to have private interests to build these increasingly larger and larger ski areas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a point there for about 15 years, from like 45 to 60, where it seems like everybody wanted to build a ski area in Colorado. So it starts to get really capital intensive, like Childers was saying there. But the other problem that comes into it is that this is now like the 1970s, the 1980s, and there's a lot of demand for skiing. Vail Resorts builds this beautiful new resort called Beaver Creek, but that ends up being the last major ski resort that ever gets built. 
Okay, so why was it the last one? There's a couple of reasons. I mean, kind of the main reason is that all the good land had been taken by the 1970s, the 1980s, where there was this huge boom in the building of ski resorts. I mean, you saw like the number go from probably just like a few hundred, maybe in like the 40s and the 50s to over 700 by like the late 1970s. You need to have a mountain that you can have like a lot of different trails on it. You know, you need to be able to sort of build a little bit around it. And all the really good places for that, they were mostly gone. But then the other thing was the environment. Beaver Creek was extremely controversial and it almost didn't get built on multiple occasions. I mean, there was like some really weird last minute government finagling where an outgoing governor had to like okay it at one of his last moments in office just for that thing to get built because there was just so much protest of people not wanting to use, especially in Colorado, any more land for skiing because they knew that it was, you know, intrusive to the environment. And so to be able to have like a big mountain you needed to have a much bigger company. And because you weren't able to also continue to build on new mountains, you had to make your existing mountains, your existing sort of resorts even better. And that again comes back to what Childers was talking about. If you had to have these really capital intensive outfits and you needed to have a really, really profitable, powerful company to do that. And what you saw was that all of these sort of smaller resorts, they consolidated with each other. Some got bought out. You saw just like absurd amounts of money getting thrown into the space by people you would never guess who started to own mountain resorts. And I mean, some really like interesting examples of that are like, there was like this wax and petroleum company called Moore and Munger that bought two major resorts in Vermont. The Sacklers, the infamous pharmaceutical family, they owned a mountain for a little while in New England. The movie studio 20th Century Fox purchased Aspen Skiing Company, which was the owner of three Colorado resorts. And so this kind of just continued on throughout the 80s and the 90s. And then there was one big winner. Vail Resorts, and then also a little bit more recently, Altera Mountain Company. So there's two behemoths in this industry now. That's so unexpected. This industry is full of contradictions. Those companies and families that you mentioned, they're just people with extra money putting it into skiing. <laughs> it is just really funny to think like a movie studio. Well, let's just get into the mountain business. And same with the Sacker family. I mean, they owned, I think at their peak, they had a hand in like 17 different ski areas all on the East Coast until they were bought out by Vail just a few years ago. Okay, so in the late 90s and sort of early aughts, Vail is casting about as a way to try and make the company even more profitable with limited development options, right, aside from consolidation. And so in the mid-aughts, they seized on something. Something happened to really sort of upend the industry, right? What was that? Yeah, so what Vail did in the mid-2000s was come out with the Epic Pass, and this was essentially a season-long pass at all of their resorts. And at that point, they owned about five or six resorts, all of them in Colorado. They now own roughly seven times that amount. They have closer to 40 resorts all over the world. But, you know, this first pass, it wasn't like the first of its kind. Season passes existed since the late 90s in Colorado and had been pretty popular. But this was different because you could go to multiple mountains. And so that first year, Vail charged $579 for the Epic Pass. This was 2008, and they ended up selling around 60,000 passes, totaling $32 million. So why would they do that? You can charge people more money just for like a single day lift ticket. So what, what are you giving them this season pass for and this incredible discount? But it changed everything because it allowed Vail to make money on the front end. 
all these skiers, they were already giving them money. So if it was like a bad weather Saturday, it wouldn't really affect Vail because the money was in the bank. They were also able to kind of front load some of their investments so they could get the best chairlifts. They could get some of the best new technology because they knew they had that money. And it absolutely changed the way that people buy ski tickets now. In more recent years, the sales numbers for those passes have gone up to 650,000 by 2016 and 2.4 million for this year's ski season. So there are like around 11 and a half million people who go skiing in the US every year. And so 2.4 million of them buy Epic Passes, basically 25%. That's an astonishing influx of capital at the beginning of every season. And one thing that I think is interesting about this strategy is that it sort of takes some of the heat off the company in terms of snowfall, right? Like it allows really hardcore skiers to follow the snow by going from mountain to mountain. Yeah. And that has had some issues, of course, but it has led to people just being like, okay, where's the good snow this week? So then they'll go to that resort in Colorado or on the Northeast because Vail has over a dozen ski resorts out there. So they can easily do that. And most people are happy, frankly, with these passes. Altera has one as well uh, called the Icon Pass and people like them. You know, they want to have the variety. It is a good deal if you're a person who skis often. It's not such a good deal necessarily if you're like a family who's maybe not all that savvy about how the ski industry works. So then you just show up to Vail and they're charging you $300 a ticket and you have to buy like four of them or something like that. It's a really bad deal in that case. But I think like the bigger picture is it has kind of changed the way that people think about skiing. You know, Michael Childers, the professor from Colorado State University, kind of put it this way. I've had a lot of people ask me about trying to write a tongue-in-cheek article about how the Epic and Icon have ruined skiing. Lift lines have gotten measurably longer because more people go skiing. Ski weeks are longer. People are now skiing Friday through Sunday. Just because it's become more affordable, it's pushed a lot more people into the same number of ski areas, which in turn, and this has been the big push, has forced these ski resorts to increase their on-mountain technology. Okay, so Vail has figured out a successful strategy despite the land limitations that they're dealing with, but their consolidation efforts haven't been totally smooth sailing or riding, right? Like across the East Coast, especially? Yeah, exactly. The East Coast infiltration of Vail is still fairly new. Like it's mainly been happening over like the last five years. And there's been two kind of main issues with it. One is that a lot of the resorts that got bought out by Vail they haven't been feeling all the veil love, frankly. And Bloomberg actually just had like a story about this recently where a lot of these kind of like smaller resorts, they haven't been getting like the updates. They haven't been getting like the new technology that one comes to expect from veil. And therefore people aren't going maybe as much as some of their other resorts. That's leading to some problems within the town. And those towns economies are just so built around skiing. And a lot of these places you used to have either like a local company or at least like a regional chain that owned these ski resorts in these smaller towns. And so they kept a lot of the jobs in those towns. There'd be like a lot of front office jobs and things like that. Those have been consolidated by Vail. So it's led to job loss and it's really made a lot of people unhappy. But maybe the most interesting thing about Vail Resorts is that it's actually been pretty good for indie resorts. Well, skiers on the West Coast and now the East Coast have options that they didn't have before. One downside to passes like the Epic Pass, which means skiers can kind of follow the snow, is longer lift lines, right? Yep. 
And I know that there have been sort of crowd issues at various <laughs> Vale resorts. Is there anywhere else for people to go? Yeah, I mean, it's those like indie resorts. They've seen record crowds in the same way that like Vale and Altera Mountain Company are raking in record profits and revenues. So are they. It's an absolutely surprising development. And even some of the owners I talked to were like a little bit worried when Vale came to town and, and rightfully. But what they've found is that there are people who like the Vale Mountains, who kind of like the bigger crowds and just like that streamlined experience. And then there are people who just want something a little bit more curated to them, right? Something that's where they still have like these weekday discounts and group discounts that you would never get at like a Vale Resort. So they come to like these indie ski areas. And I was talking to Chris Blomback, who's the general manager of Pat's Peak in New Hampshire. And he couldn't exactly even tell you why it's happened, but it has happened. So our path sales have been consistently up over the last four or five years since those corporations have moved in. And I can't look you straight in the face and give you 100% reasoning as to why that is. I think a little bit is how we operate our resort. I think a little bit is maybe they're turned off by some of the crowds that are showing up at some of their places because they're really, you know, they blow out season passes pretty inexpensively. So they sell a lot of them. And on a Saturday, I can guarantee you we are a lot less busy than some of our competitors are around us. Okay, so if I'm understanding this right, this sounds like one of those rare instances where everybody wins. I mean, almost everybody, like, like at least for now. It's like just one of the rarest things where the big conglomerates are winning, but they're not winning so much that they're like destroying everything. And it has led to some amount of happiness for indie resort operators. So the ski business is just truly having its golden age. Yeah. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, go get yourself signed up at thehustle.co slash email. Catch you next time. Hey, everybody, I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work, and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.